0: You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.
1: And therefore we can all lock into that and everything will be fine. That basically means we do nothing for another 20 years and then we all you know, accelerate the process in the last 10. If, that, if we follow what's happened in the past. So the question really uh, is that will business leaders accept this honestly and start to address it? And are they prepared to actually act on it? because this requires massive change in the way the business community look at it and as Paul said history is not on their side. I mean we haven't seen any change really Um, you know we've talked about this, we have processes, we have the UN we have business groupings all around the world working on the solutions but nothing is reducing emissions so I mean you tend to come to the point of agreeing with what Paul says these guys won't do it so the question now is they must be given the challenge of saying, well, show us, can you do it, are you prepared to do it, and be held to the task, or they disappear. And that's quite simply where we've got to, and uh, I know there's a lot of discussion going on around the world about how do we accelerate this process and so on, uh, but we've had it before. I mean, we've seen this going on for 20 years, um, you know, conferences and so on, and there just comes a point where you have to say that's enough. Stop." We now need to see this occur. It's got to start occurring in the next two, three years, um, no longer than that. And uh, the only way that's going to happen is if groups like yourselves, communities, um, the other sectors of the business community that are in the solutions end, the genuine solutions end, start making far more noise. And that pressure is brought to bear on, on political systems to change. I mean, politicians will not follow. I mean, I think it was a a French politician in the 1850s, or sometimes said, "Oh, there go, <coughs> there go the people! I must follow, for I am their leader." And that's basically what's happening. Um, the changes in Canberra, at one level, are nice to see, but Canberra has basically been about process, and so has the business community. It's not been about outcomes. What we now have to see are outcomes. So I would encourage you to spread that message and if you have shares and you have uh, business contacts and whatever please make it very clear to them this is what we now expect. Thank you.
2: Thanks Ian. Um, um, The next speaker, Heidi Lee, has um, described herself as a reformed architect and um, and is is now the business and industry manager for Beyond Zero Emissions, which was, um, from memory, set up at around the same time as Climate Code Red came out, and um, and was linked to Safe Climate Australia, which was um, Philip Sutton, one of the co-authors, was um, was uh, involved with, and uh, and was a fantastic organisation that very much was solutions focused, and uh, and so Heidi is going to talk to us now about, uh, you know just exactly how much we know already.
3: Thanks, Patty, and um, thanks everyone for coming today. I think this is an incredibly important discussion to have when we're looking for solutions to what the problems are and the scale of the problem in front of us. When we're looking at um, solutions around business and industry, one of the most recent pieces of work that Beyond Zero Emissions has been doing is looking at the industrial manufacturing sector. So today I'm going to tell you a little bit for anyone who doesn't know who BZE are, Beyond Zero Emissions, what our research base is, what we know we know, the industry engagement program that I'm running this year and the benefits that you might expect to see on the ground in communities that are most impacted by fossil fuel employment and activities at the moment. Beyond Zero Emissions, we're a climate change solutions think tank, and we have those gorgeous t-shirts worn by that guy right there. Excellent. Uh, Ten years ago, you're right, Patty, we started publishing Zero Carbon Australia plans. These are 10-year transition plans. We went sector by sector through the economy, energy buildings, transport, land use, and now industry. Um, we use the knowledge base that we've created for outreach as well, and that's always sat alongside the research that we do. So it comes out in publications, and launch events, and seminars. Comes out on our radio show, and you get to hear about it in the news sometimes when we get the right. You know, he's not looking at me. Um, the research base, the Electrifying Industry Report. We hear about the manufacturing sector and the problems that the manufacturing sector in Australia is having right now rising energy costs, fossil fuel dependencies, and quite wildly inefficient as well. We use more units of energy per dollar of output than any other developed country. There are huge opportunities for improving the efficiency of the sector, but also for electrifying it and repowering it with renewables. So we do the technology side of the the research and, and looking at that, and what we find is that there is absolutely no technical barrier to this. You can run a steel factory on purely electricity. You can uh, make bricks without gas kilns. They they microwave them, believe it or not, which sounds very exciting to me. And um, as part of being the business and industry lead, I also get to go out and visit places around Australia like steel factories and get to see some of these electric arc furnaces in action that can replace gas furnaces in the steel making process. Of course, you've still got to do some um, get some input from metallurgists to make sure that the steel you're making is still good without coal, but it can be done and it is being done overseas. So, I'm going to be solutions focused here. This isn't about the scale of the problem. This is about looking in the mirror and saying, well, what's the role of an independent think tank that writes about these solutions in solving the issues in front of us? So with that, we went and developed what we're calling an industry engagement program. I'm the business and industry lead. I'm focusing on implementing the outcomes from our electrifying industry research through the usual channels. Partnering with industry groups to run seminars, or with large organisations to go in and actually work with them to um, share the good news about, you know, the solutions that all El electric um, products and equipment can can deliver. I'm working with communities that already exist. So mobilising that community of experts. I'm talking about professionals and and bona fide experts, people who've been doing this for however many years and and bring enormous credibility to the knowledge that we're sharing right now. So actually mobilising those people, making sure that they are networked across all of the different decision-makers and players in this space to actually make the good ideas, those bright ideas, come into fruition. And thirdly, we we are actually partnering with businesses in the manufacturing space to help them secure grants for those um, companies that are looking to be leaders, who are looking to do something radical that's beyond business as usual, that could actually transform their local community. Um, We're partnering with them in a knowledge share capacity to help them uh, meet the requirements of grants. We're calling that one the, the zero carbon factory. So always uh, bail me up with factory leads. That's a really fun part of what I get to do. When you look at all this, what would happen if we actually implemented all these solutions um, across the country? So we go back to the research side of BZE, and last year we also published two reports that looked at communities in Australia. One was in the Northern Territory, That one's called the 10 gigawatt vision. And that was actually really about lifting the ambition for what the Northern Territory can achieve if it actually deployed and capitalized on all the renewable energy potential that the place has. What you can do equates to about 8,000 new jobs for the Territory. There's 250,000 people that live in the Northern Territory, 8,000 new jobs over that 10 years. 5,000 of them will be ongoing. The shale gas, um, proposal from the, from the government up there, um, the most optimistic projection there was 500, 5,000 to 500. We also looked at another smaller community. We looked at, at the town of Collie in southwest Western Australia. And this project here was really looking at um, working closely with unions, working closely with the business community around what is going to happen. They're, they are facing the imminent closure of coal-fired power stations, and all of the mines that go and feed into that. So what we found there was that this um, repowering with renewables, actually scaling up the manufacturing sector, can provide them with around 1,700 jobs instead of the 1,200 that they will lose. So this is actually a transition plan. It's food for the conversations that the unions and the businesses are having with the government around what support do they need to actually make the change. How can this be a win the community. So we say if you look to renewable energy and you look to electrifying industry, you'll find jobs there that actually suit the skills base for people who have been working in fossil fuel dependent sectors. This is not about boilermakers making lattes. This is about actually having high skill jobs, high quality jobs in industries that have a long term future in our country. With that I will just say a quick thanks. So we are 90% Uh, powered by volunteers. We literally, 90% of the work hours BZE does is through volunteers, so thank you, because I know there's going to be people in the audience who've contributed. So thanks to you for the knowledge base and the outreach that makes the work that we're doing now with business and industry possible. And special thank you to anyone who's donating, large and small, all makes a difference.
2: Thanks, Heidi. And our last speaker is um, Simon Holmes um, son of the great mining entrepreneur Robert Holmes uh and, uh and also a, a, a pioneer of um, community wind. So I first interviewed Simon when he was doing the Hepburn Wind Project, which is the first community-owned wind farm in the country, and uh, and is a, a commentator and also a senior advisor to the Energy Transition Hub at Melbourne University and a board member of the Smart Energy Council. and. Um, Yeah, I'll save my question up for after,
0: Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for coming along today. Um, Great panel to be on. I'll stand near this microphone. Um, We had a carbon price just seven years ago. Uh, It was working really well. Emissions started coming down, business Uh, A lot of businesses changed their their plans uh, in order to accelerate uh, the energy transition. Uh, And our farmers were on track to enter into uh, international carbon trading markets that would have... uh, Ironically, they would be exporting billions of dollars of credits uh, now. We had a change of government and we uh, dismantled that scheme and business sat by. Uh, Not only did they not speak up uh, about, uh, about the dismantling of the scheme, But many of our large groups cheered. Uh, Here I have um, a press press release from the Australian Industry Group, Business Council Australia, and the Minerals Council, all cheering uh, that that we would got rid of this this carbon price. Well, things didn't change for a very long time. Back in uh, uh, only 18 months ago, the Business Council put out a tweet uh, that sent shivers through a lot of people's spines. They said, 45% emissions reduction is an economy-wrecking target. Uh, This was only 18 months ago. Fast forward to Monday, uh, Zali Stegall put out, a uh, she she announced or formally released her zero emissions by 2050 uh, bill and on Q&A that night we had Jennifer Westacott, the CEO of the Business Council, uh, giving what I thought for for someone in her position a very strong endorsement of of the target and of the bill. and walking back some of the comments they'd made previously on using Kyoto credits to cheat on our international commitments. Um, a big shift uh, over, over the last 18 months. State of play, uh, well, so what, what's, what's brought this about, what, what's the state of these three organisations? Business Council has a new chair. Uh, we've got a tech uh, chair um, from Myob from versus the previous chair. Uh, was an oil and gas chair from Origin. Um, that's part of, part of the significant shift, I think. Uh, the organisation has also been under fire uh, significantly from uh, various activist campaigns I'll talk about in a bit. Uh, they've, had, um, they, they've been put on notice by a number of members. Now, it's only, it, it, it's only a start, but they're in a different position to where they were uh, even 18 months ago. The AI group is starting to make some positive noises along the same uh, line. Uh, The MCAO, the Minerals Council, I wish I could uh, talk up progress there, but we're not seeing it. They're they're still spruiking, you know, quote, and I've got to put lots of quotes, uh, clean coal, uh, their heli campaign, coal plus um, uh, carbon capture and storage, uh, and they've waded significantly into the nuclear debate um, recently. But the um, Minerals Council is also weakened by a number of uh, very uh, strategic campaigns. There has been a societal shift. Uh, over, over the last 18 months. Uh, climate scepticism is becoming a lot more rare uh, out there. Um, there's, there's a, I love that a, a quote from Max Planck that science advances one funeral at a time. Right. It's um, uh, five, six, seven years ago uh, we, we had a lot more uh, uh, old-timers, I guess, in business circles who had grown up in the resource sector, had denialist views. And are on the outer. Uh, they're on the outer now. So, uh, you know, no longer do we have people like Morris Newman and Dick Warburton representing uh, business uh, at, you know, in, in Canberra. Um, they're very well and truly retired. Public attitudes have have shifted. The, the fires uh, have have certainly helped shift. Uh, I think you know people are seeing the predictions come through. through. Uh, and there, uh, there is fatigue uh, over over the uh, this issue not being settled. Uh, professional groups are standing up, so it's not just the environment groups now, that it's not just um, you know the good folks at Greenpeace, ACF, and WWF who are, who are championing uh, climate action. But we're now seeing uh, doctors, uh, the engineers declare movement, uh, architects, lawyers. Uh, also, also um, farm, the farmers for climate action, emergency leaders for climate action, there are a whole lot of non traditional uh, speakers in this place, in, in the space, saying enough. And of course, the youth engagement. I, I, I think um, people have every right to be stunned by how quickly that movement came together. And uh, you know, every, every, almost every one of those kids uh, in, in this photo, I would say you know, probably two thirds of them uh, would be voting uh, in the next election and uh, the remainder will be voting in the election after that. Uh, Plus, they all go home and talk to their parents and engaging in in new ways. So um, the significance of all of these together have shifted the environment that business operates within. External pressure is coming on the business through uh, through, through new new NGO approaches, uh, market forces, sort of name and name and shame approach to to uh, convince companies not to not to back the Adani project. Uh, we've seen uh, GHD and Downer and a whole lot of, whole lot of companies say no, we're not going to have any part in building uh, in, in building this infrastructure, uh, and that's come out of. Um, uh, very multifaceted pressure points applied on those, on those businesses. Shareholder resolutions, folks like the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility uh, do a fantastic job putting up uh, very, very professional, going through all the right channels to get motions at annual general meetings to, uh, to have companies review their, uh, their membership of professional organisations and the, the pressure on Rio Tinto and BHP to review their membership of the, business ca- of, sorry, of the Minerals Council uh, has has put immense pressure. BHP represents 17% of Minerals Council's revenue, just that one membership fee. So when BHP says, we want you to uh, stop being uh, overtly climate denialists, uh, the MCA uh, is, is struggling to resolve that issue, but certainly they are, they are, are not doing so. They're not playing such a public uh, destructive role um, groups like Greenpeace are, uh, are putting out uh, uh, rankings of businesses on, on how, how aggressively they're moving towards decarbonising their electricity, so that's sort of more on the name and name and shame. Uh, and then other positive uh, um, responses, uh, things like the, the RE100, phenomenal effort. Uh, there's 221 international multinational companies that have signed up to go 100% before 2030. Uh, a lot of them are finding they can do it faster than they originally said, and some of them uh, are announcing they're 100 per cent already. Together, um, th- this, this list is, um, was the first 110 or so logos. Uh, it's, it's, it's double that now. There's about uh, I think eight or nine companies in Australia that have signed up with this. The top five banks are all on board. Uh, uh, insurance companies and uh, property trusts have all signed up and we're seeing uh, a, a, um, that, that membership is, is, is growing. Uh, growing exponentially, and then the the governance and risk frameworks that that directors are very aware of, Uh, not only have we got the the ASX and ASIC uh, 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 telling companies they have to start disclosing climate risks, uh, and the the RBA making such statements, but I had a friend who did the Australian Institute of of, of Company Directors course the other day, the training, and they've rewritten their training materials, so in the very first unit you're talking about climate risk. Uh, And the directors, uh, they they absolutely have to look after the interests of the companies, but all of them are concerned about their own um, fiduciary uh, duties and the risk that that places on them. Uh, Internal pressures uh, on companies. So the the goalposts are moving. The one thing that companies look at above all else is the ability to make profits. The profitability of the gas. And coal sectors uh, is becoming harder and harder uh, to, to make the business cases. As soon as you put in a, ca- a carbon risk, uh, it destroys it destroys many business cases going forward. So the fundamentals are changing. Uh, but one thing that I think uh, is it doesn't get enough airtime is what's called the war for talent. Uh, if you're an in, if, if you're you're a uh, in the knowledge economy, if you're a um, uh, a software company, uh, you're very aware of this. But across across the workforce. Uh, It is harder and harder to employ young people who don't agree with the values uh, of of the company. Young folks are joining engineering firms and in their their interviews they're asking, does this company work for fossil fuel companies? And uh, if if, if a company can't answer the right way, they go to the next company. Um, I spoke um, uh, at an event with Mike Cannon-Brooks recently from Atlassian, who was one of the first companies to sign up to the RE100 and they've found that uh, the RE100 membership has energised a whole layer of the business. People have, uh, um, are signing up to all sorts of working groups trying to work out how the company not only goes to 100 per cent renewable, but zero carbon across the board, uh, and it's, it's a real um, retention and excitement, you know, excitement amongst, amongst the employees. We're not through the gate yet. There's a long way to go. Um, the, you know, it's one thing for the business council to come out with a statement like that and the minerals council to soften, but let's, um, let's see what happens. Uh, the proof is in the pudding and, and we've got one test point with this zero carbon bill that's going through. We still have federal antipathy towards doing anything in the climate space, anything constructive. Uh, and we still have this revolving door uh, of you know, in, in the prime minister's office we have two coal executives uh, that have moved from the minerals council uh through through to uh sitting in the senior advisors to the prime minister uh and and we have mps that, are, that do the same i'll leave it at that thank you
2: Thank, um, thanks very much, Simon. I'll just whip through a, a couple of quick questions, one for each. Paul, can I just ask you? You, you, um, you write about contagion. It's as though there will be a tipping point. There will be a moment when you know the capital stampedes for the exit on fossil fuels. You know, we've had the Banker of, uh, Bank of International Settlements, the central bankers' banker, talk about green swan events. Um, we've had the RBA recently talk about the profound impact and maybe of climate change and maybe that it will have to step in as a buyer of last resort of stranded assets. When when, when I ask when it will happen, how do you see that this, what, what will be the catalyst for the kind of disruption? I hope to in more
4: detail, but just to summarise it, is that markets tick, right, for no particularly obvious reason to beforehand. forehand. They want to overcome Right, so the credit prices that we had, everyone anyway, afterwards, oh, I knew it was coming, but I wasn't sure it would happen that fast, and so I didn't want to go first, because I want to miss out. But this is how markets always be paid. So I think the important thing here is that, if you look at the, this paper has a whole list of examples of that, the reference the examples of what all this evidence is. And I'm telling you that it's just an instinctive thing, otherwise I'd be a fucking investor of than a <laughs> um, But I think it's interesting. And I'm going to say human, the market terms zero for five years. So I don't know why I say that. It is the value of x for example, has been steadily going down, down. They're now borrowing money, these companies, to pay dividends. Right? They're borrowing money to pay dividends because they're dividend stocks. So, and, and yet the value is going down partly because of that. Now, the critical the, 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 number issue one so issue I think, is the The possibility globally, how many things very hard, despite families' hard work, trying to try and find a specific number on this uh, paper. So it's roughly as tall as 500 billion billion every year on capital expenditure, developing new finding, discovering, developing new reserves for the market in 10 to 15 years' time. Right? Five hundred billion billion a year based on there being a growing market for oil and gas in particular in 10 years' time. That's obviously wrong. But they all think, oh yeah, but we'll get the market, will longer miss out or something. Like it's just it's obviously wrong, and yet they're all doing it. Now the point of that is that the investors, at some point, literally could be money or it could be in one year, or it will be in ten years. Are going to say, well, hang on, that's you're you're assuming, despite the bushfires, despite the uprising around the world on climate change, nothing's going to change in the next ten to twenty years. Just as a financial person, that's not too big a risk to take. So would you please cut that part of to all so Nothing and give it to me as the investor and I'll go and buy a Tesla stock. Right? Because that's a much better idea. I'll say that as a a simplistic example, but it's exactly what occurs in markets. As they say to the board, remember the shareholders own the companies. And they'll say, no, no, stop doing that and give us the money. And if you don't, we're going to sell your shares because it's too risky. And that's the sort of thing that will then unleash the tipping point across the market. Because insurers are charging more. Central banks are worrying about it. They can't recruit people, right? The technology is looking harder and harder to get it going. The oil prices are staying down, etc., etc. So all this stuff is already happening, and not just of all the oil and cost companies, right? Not just those industries, but across many industries, there's huge financial risks that are not yet priced right into it. And once it clicks, it'll run like contagion, right? Through every one of those industries. Just to closing story sorry, Queensland and Western Australian state government bonds, super reliable, super solid. Super unrisky part. The Swedish Central Bank, not Swedes, the Swedish Central Bank, not famous for being greenies or but right, I sold all their d- bonds in the Queensland and Western Australian state governments because of politics. before the fires. So you can just see how this will suddenly flip and everyone says, Oh i I'm going I'm, I'm not gonna be in that
2: Thanks, Paul. Um, Ian, you, you're out of that world. I think you were president or secretary of the um, Institute of Company Directors. You've written recently that you know, there is, a, there is a, a kind of old a director's club, a boys club, mostly. Um, are we still, you know, are our boards still under the grip of you know, the greenhouse mafia, um, or is that starting to change?
1: To a large extent, sorry, i is About, yeah. To a large extent, they still are. I mean, the problem is there's a senior cadre of directors in this country who have exercised enormous influence on the direction of companies for many, many years now. And uh, what Paul's described, I mean, is what I call predatory delay, where people have said, look, yes, climate change may be an issue, but governments won't act within the next 10 years and therefore this is a good business, we can make good profit, so we'll keep investing in it until we reach the point where somebody's going to do something. Now, I mean, that's ethically and morally bankrupt if you know what the implications for climate change are. And these are companies that have the best access to the climate science and interpretation and the understanding of risks of anybody in the system. So they've quite deliberately gone ahead and allowed this to happen. And, you know, we, we have a small um, cadre of directors in this country. A very small number of them have ex- ex- exerted enormous influence and stopped, because of peer pressure, people moving away from what I call groupthink. In other words, everybody's in it. It's the lemming thing that Paul mentioned, is that nobody wants to be the first to, you know, put up the flag and say, hey, this isn't right. Now, it is still a problem. It's probably starting to break down, but it's why, you, in my view, you have to keep on talking about what the risks really are because people haven't accepted them yet. We know the solutions are all there, as Heidi said, I mean it's all coming through. We should have been doing it long ago, we haven't, and now we have no choice but making it absolutely crystal clear that this now has to happen, and the one thing is emission reduction. That's what you've got to keep pushing. It's no good you know, pretending we're gonna do something five years down the line or something, you have gotta do it now. So the pressure's gotta be on all of those companies to do that, and you actually do need them to get involved in doing it, because they're the ones who are gonna have to make a lot of the change. And the other big dimension that isn't talked about is the fact that if you're in these high-risk situations, there is going to be major change. Unless you plan for that transition, it's going to be an awful mess and you've already seen it in what's happened in the south coast of New South Wales and Malacuta in the last few months. I mean, you look at the way in which society starts to break down when these sort of impacts come in. Nobody was prepared for it. The government says they were, but they weren't. Uh, We all scrambled to respond and put all these things in place, and Australia generally does that pretty well. But the fact is that you're now gonna have large numbers of people having to change their activities, move out of the coal industry into other industries, and unless you plan for that, a lot of people are going to get hurt. So it's in everybody's interest to make sure the government starts to take the view and the companies themselves take the view of planning for that transition logically. Um, It could have been slower and more orderly. It won't be now because we've left it too late, but we can still avoid creating an absolute shambles.
2: Um, Heidi, you know, Beyond Zero has been laying out solutions now for more than a decade in your work with the, um, you know, engaging with industry in the last year. Do you get a sense that there's a willingness to, you know, put serious capital um, from business into the solutions that, you know, Beyond Zero is busy identifying?
3: I think as much capital as is available. Absolutely, But there's still the loss leader risk here where when I'm specifically working with really high energy users, because that's the, the research plan that we're looking at implementing here, they don't have buckets of capital sinking fund out the back waiting to like invest in a new... This electric arc furnace that I tell you is very, very impressive. They don't have that waiting out the back. They have been ground down by lack of clear policy and lack of clear investment direction for many, many years. So this is a whole sector of our economy that has basically been left out or left behind of serious planning about what this transition is actually going to look like. And that's where the actual work one-on-one with some of those companies to try and get some of the technical solutions that the Swedish steel makers are using, that these other technologies, they're more affordable overseas, and just to help them get that that difference, that delta between what they've got and what they actually need to do to help shift the whole sector behind them to actually make the change. So there is certainly no lack of willingness. Electrical engineers are your best friends in the transition. They're going to win upside and down so it's really about finding those heroes within the business that are doing their part and that's that's what all of us get to do but businesses certainly there's been no resistance to spending the money they're happy to spend it differently but they can't at the moment budge from that three-year return on investment in the manufacturing sector which is which is incredibly hard to innovate within
2: um One thing it seems to me it comes back to, although we're talking about business-changing attitude, it does come back to um, leadership from the federal government. And, um, Simon, it seems like, um, you know, if you look at, for example, yes you've written recently for The Guardian, um, the government's announcements, uh, you know, the first bilateral deal we saw between the Federals and New South Wales on energy, um, focuses on gas.
0: Yeah, gas was a big focus of an announcement Uh, by the Prime Minister, what, two weeks ago. uh, And just early this week, we had um, Professor Alan Finkel at the Press Club uh, talking about the importance of gas uh, for uh, the hydrogen transition that that, that he's very keen about. I'll just quickly talk about the the first one, the deal with New South Wales. Um, The the Prime Minister said at that launch, he said that no transition plan exists uh, that doesn't see a greater use for gas. I went looking. I couldn't find a single one. In fact, I found 14 transition plans and reputable ones, ones you know, from, from PWC, from AEMO, the Energy Market Operator, uh, Finkel's own review from 2017, uh, you know, All up, the BZE was the first back in 2010. Uh, there, there was um, some... <laughs> you cannot find a transition plan for Australia that has a greater role uh, for gas. So that was blatant, blatantly false. Um, someone's giving us serenading us beautiful um, <laughs> um, so 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 that that frames false and it's and it's it's really about uh, creating more putting more gas into the market for the for the exports which you know four-fifths of our gas in Australia is exported uh, overseas that announcement was purely about uh, export gas for Finkel um, uh, um, Finkel's a very very clever man but I think he he, he, he thinks of himself a bit as a politician, with the Finkel review, uh, and now with his hydrogen. Um, twice we've given a scientist an economist job, and they've come back with a political report. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, uh, he, he, he knows that there's not a long-term future for coal and gas to hydrogen, but he also knows that progressing uh, his plan uh, or his plan won't progress if if there is a, a anti-fossil fuel bent in it, or if it's a pro-renewables. It'll be, it, it, the sophistication is uh, in, in the in the coalition party room is so poor on energy that he knows his his his, proce- his, his proposals will never go anywhere. So he talks it up, but I I, I honestly don't believe that he believes that there's a future uh, for gas there. Just one quick thing on on gas. Who's aware uh, that Woodside has got the uh, the the um, consultation period for the Browse project is is in play right now. Is anyone aware of that? Three, four, five, three, four hands. Um, that, that, that project uh, has a carbon footprint of 500 million tonnes, which is five times bigger than the government's $2 billion climate solutions fund. Mm-hmm. Right? So as, as taxpayers, we're all about to allocate $2 billion dollars to averting just one fifth the size of Woodside 's project, and they don 't intend to do a thing to abate that gas, so uh, big parts of the economy aren 't feeling the pressure most of us don 't even know:
2: um, Thanks very much. Um, could I just ask for a show of hands for we 've got, we've got ten maybe we can run over a little bit, but um, oh, we 've got lots of questions i'm sorry i 'll start here at the front. <laughs>
5: Oh, thanks so much, This has been really fascinating. Um, you've mentioned the, uh, Sweden a couple of times, but I'm interested to know whether there are particular countries that Australia can take inspiration from in building this business coalition, or whether it has to be completely international.
1: Sorry, I didn't quite get that. <laughs> Sorry.
5: To my um, um, just interested in, in asking whether you think Australia should be looking for inspiration um, in other countries who are building this business coalition or whether it should be more international, or whether Australia is too unique in a situation to to be kind of copying other countries?
1: Well, look, I mean, this is a global problem. I mean, it can't be solved by Australia in isolation. It's quite clear. But Australia, to follow Simon's comments, I mean, everybody keeps on telling us politically that we only 1.3% of global emissions. If you add in the sort of things that Simon's talking about, we very shortly, if it keeps on going, will be the third largest carbon polluter in the world. And we're relying for our future on polluting the world to that extent. So you've got to allow um, and take that into account in the equation. So, I mean, Australia um, in its own self-interest is one of the countries most exposed to climate change. It's in our own self-interest to solve this problem. We should be leading the global discussion on achieving the sort of things I'm talking about in you know, emission reductions, which is going to have to involve not just here, but the big emitters around the world. So you know we should be taking that leadership, instead of which we've spent 30 years doing everything we possibly can to stop serious climate policy internationally being developed. I mean, that's been the fact ever since John Howard got the famous Australia clause in the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which allowed us to increase emissions by 8%, not reduce them, in the first part of the Kyoto Protocol. And it's gone on. So, you know, we have to start to take that international leadership.
2: Paul, you consult to international companies. Do you feel like there is a better environment or a better example of a policy framework overseas that we should be looking to?
4: So definitely, and the answer is in business, that in the countries that have a reasonably good climate position, you know, long term plans, climate change bills, etc. universally, the business community supports them. All right? So so what you don't get is the US, you know, etc. Australia because the business community doesn't support it. So if you get the business community on board, then you get this multi they still argue about the details, but that's the, the, the crucial missing link.
2: Oh Simon, sorry? Sorry.
3: Uh, only to colour it with a specific example, so one of the companies that I got to work a little bit more closely with was a large multinational, and what we found was that their Australian-based operations were actually a testing ground for the types of technologies they were going to use to decarbonise their, uh, or electrify and then decarbonise their operations in Canada, because Canada had set a price on and some some financial implications around carbon emissions, but Australia's energy prices and our uh, insecurity around our market and our trajections meant that we were the perfect case, uh, we could actually get in ahead of Canada because we're, we're going to get so many rewards for this company for doing the exact same thing as they're doing overseas. Um, I'll I-
0: oh, oh, just, quick, just quickly say that I, I've met with a, a number of um, uh, large industrial companies in Germany and uh, Japan recently uh, researching energy transition in, in heavy industry met with uh, ThyssenKrupp, a major a steel producer in, in Germany, who have absolutely accepted they're going to be zero carbon by 2050 uh, and, they're, and they're going to be 30% lower by 2030. It's a very challenging task, but they've got their best brains on it and they don't, they're not prevaricating at all. They know they've got to get there. Uh, and I was in, in Japan talking with a major shipping line, uh, they're, they're wanting to know um, where they're going to get their green ammonia from, their ammonia that's produced uh, with, with renewable energy. disencrypt the same in Germany. They want to know where their ammonia is going to come from. So Australia, it'll, no, come from, it'll come from Australia, where, where, where we have these boundless plains that are windswept and sun-drenched.
2: Sorry, I had that call.
1: I don't think it, there's any doubt at all that the uh, coal miners of North Queensland put the coalition back into power at the last election. Uh, so seriously, with all of this, uh, I think the, one of the big issues, like immediate issues, is to find those guys meaningful jobs. I mean, they you, you know, they'll vote that way. And, and I think, you know, Bob Brown probably made it worse than he... Than anything by leading that ridiculous trip up to tell the coal miners that their their jobs are over, so what there really has to be a plan about what we 're going to do with with guys that are working in the fossil fuel industries, especially if they 're controlling enough votes to to put the deniers back in power.
2: Thanks very much, and I 'll just say I was on that convoy. Um, I was up there and <laughs> just missed the day when they actually there was all the um, rough housing as they drove in. Uh, I was bumped into Pauline Hanson on her way back, so you had CADA there, you had uh, a whole bunch of the CFMU giving everyone the day off, free beers, Um, yeah, Canavan revving them up. Uh, So it was absolutely, and you know, Murdoch Media all the way um, revving up these these convoys coming, and it was a culture war, it was ridiculous, Uh, but I don't think it actually... um, But anyway, I think we know a couple of other things that got the coalition elected, uh, including a couple of sports rorts, Uh, that we were finding out about last night in the Senate, and um, $89 million worth of Clive Palmer's money. But also, um, Simon, you were going to answer about the the future for coal workers.
3: Could I? Uh, I'll I'll do specifics. I like doing specifics. So um, first of all, uh, grew up in central Queensland, born in Rockhampton. Hi, Mum. She grew there as well. Um, The work that we did in Collie, we think, and this I would love to get fact-checked because I would really like to make this claim um, more broadly, we think it's the first time that an environmental organisation has worked in partnership with four different workers' unions who are active in that area, who are looking for jobs and looking for solutions for their workers. The launch of Collie at the Crossroads, the name of the report we did, um, this was last November we launched it, if I get that date right, but the um, the... Unions were there at the launch and we're going back in April to talk again um, at an energy forum with as many unions, as many workers as we can because this is part of actually sharing the news about what to ask for. It is not enough to say no. You have to find something to say yes to and that's what these regional transition reports and these regional transition plans are all about. But they must be done with the real people who are actually impacted by this not us latte sippers, it's actual people on the ground who are going to be moving their jobs and going somewhere different for work. They need industry and they need meaningful employment that takes recognition of all the skills that they've already got.
0: I don't want to detract from that at all. It, 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 you know, it's, it, it's very important that, that we deliver a, a just transition to coal workers, that we give them a better transition than the car industry uh, took, uh, than, than millions of, you know, dozens of other industries uh, journalists. Have, have had in the past. Gen- yeah, there was no transition plan for journalists. Um, um, no. Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute often points out that where was a transition plan for the folks who worked in the one hour photo booths uh, in shopping centres a decade ago? Uh, they, they, were, they had their Kodak moment. Um, uh, we had the, ger- the head of the German Energy Agency came out and saw us recently at Melbourne Union. She, she was bemused that we spent so much effort in Australia fighting against export coal. Uh, in in her, her, her feeling was that coal would leave Australia long before Australia left coal. Um, that uh, it's not that we're telling the coal workers in Queensland, hey, we want you to get out of the industry. It's like, hey, guys, get ready. This industry is going to close. So let's give them a, a, a just transition. Um, uh, um, because of that, but just on the electoral mass, I just... Queensland coal workers didn't control the election, but they certainly the narrative has controlled the current political economy. Only two seats in Queensland flipped at the last election. Two seats flipped in northern Tasmania, right? No-one's talking about northern Tasmania. The same number of seats flipped there. And in Queensland, one of those seats was the Gold Coast. They weren't voting for coal. They were voting for their tax credits. Uh, And the seat that that flipped probably on coal was one of the most marginal seats in Australia. So any time you hear people say that the last election was won and lost on coal, that's rubbish. It's important for the political narrative, but it wasn't the electoral maths.
2: Um, I'm sorry, I'm I'm definitely going to run out of time for questions. I was going to take this um, woman over here on the wall, but also panellists, do you have time for like two more? Have we? Oh, okay, sweet. All right, good. Sorry. Two old Matt. speakers
5: spoke about renewable energies being the future, and I hope it is. But I read in Renew Economy recently that Downer has left Australia. They were going to build a big solar because of the um, transmission problems. Could somebody please answer what we what are we going to do? Victoria apparently and New South Wales have both been told they have to the solar plants. They have to only produce half as what they wanted to, and that's not a good um, situation for them economically.
0: one of, one of the things that would make a big difference in the renewable energy sector, in the energy sector, is if the government got out of the way. The, the number of uh, government interventions has, and I'm going to put a big asterisk on that, but the, the, the government has got in the way of investor certainty uh, for about a decade now uh, for, the, for the, the fighting over renewable energy targets and carbon prices, et cetera, and, and uh, threats to underwrite new coal power, etc. That kills investments. If the government got out of the way, investors would proceed. But there's one thing that government could do and should... Would, Needs to do the one role it has is accelerating, uh, removing the roadblocks. And one of the ways to do that is accelerate the transmission upgrades that are required for this restructuring of our network. The investors are there wanting to build. The economic case is there that if if you build, you reduce energy prices, you reduce emissions very cheaply. The transmission business case is there. If the transmission's built, it'll reduce energy prices and improve security. But we just need the government to accelerate those processes. Some developers were told recently that it would take seven years before they, they could get around to connecting their farms. We need federal energy minister to step in and accelerate those processes.
2: What about the Greens proposal for a Green New Deal? You talk about massive public investment in transmission, you know, storage, generation... The, the energy
0: market operator, Emo, puts out an, an annual... Actually, um, every two years is, is the integrated system plan. Uh, they, they released it recently. It's a phenomenal document. It shows that uh, under business as usual, assuming the government... Uh, clears the roadblocks, but under just the, the investment settings we have right now, we're going to end up with a 76% renewable energy uh, network as the least cost going forward um, in 20 years' time. And that doesn't seem fast enough, so they've got another case that's science based that we can have an 85% reduction of emissions from the electricity sector for only about, I think it's 6% greater cost. It's, it's a phenomenal document. that lets out a. You know, people say, we need a plan, or where's the plan? AMO's been producing this plan. They've got 60 people in the long-range forecasting group that have been working on these plans for five years. Uh, It's a phenomenal document. Um, It turns out in these documents, we don't need a massive investment. We just need a modest investment to be done now rather than being held off for three, four,
2: five years. Um, I'll just take a couple couple from this side (coughs) there. Sorry, you were early. And then I'll go to the woman behind me. Um, oh oh no, uh, a, sorry. now I feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I go on? Oh, you might as
5: well. Look, there's a lot to talk about industry and manufacturing industries, but what about all the small businesses? Is, is there someone acting in the same capacity as Heidi, for instance, for small business? Because it seems to me there's a lot more small business. My son was one of them, and I see that that needs to be there carbon
3: emissions need to be to? We're, we're happy to take on more funding to expand our programs. Um, at the moment, <laughs> at the, moment uh, the work that I'm doing with industry does include SMEs, which is like 80% of the manufacturing sector, so might not be small businesses generally, but certainly for in, in our camp and in this program would include um, small Manufacturers as well, which is which is the vast majority of the um, the employment.
2: Um, I'll try and move quickly so that yeah, sorry, you. I meant originally. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. P- Paul spoke
5: about uh, citizens voting with their feet with power, uh, solar, and batteries, and so on. Um, and and this has happened. In the other section the sector we haven't spoken about is the transport sector, which, on current trajectory, is projected to by 2030 to have. Uh, uh, emissions at 122% on 205 levels, so going the, r- the wrong way and ina- inadequate. And as much as people are walking and cycling and using public transport, we haven't got the infrastructure to carry the mass transit. And the, just like the oil, coal, and gas companies, we're being sold autonomous vehicles will fix the problems, uh, uh, electric That's vehicles will fix. Fit the problems when we, you know, which will, but they won't fix the problems with uh, congestion, and embodied energy and sole-occupant vehicles. When ninety percent of the transport task is by private vehicles, so
3: uh, response so what's the, on what's the,
5: the importance of moving right. in that direction.
1: Well, just, just to answer that and the previous question on small business in general, the the big problem we still have in this country is that we have leadership that is still not accepting that climate change is real. And the result of that is we have this continual um, friction between the different sides of politics and the different sides of business, whether it's small business or large business. They can't get together to actually optimize the approach to solving the emissions and the climate problem. I mean, If we're going to get on top of this, we have got to get all of the actors on one page pushing in the same direction. And then I think things will start to happen far more quickly than we're seeing them. Big business has a critical role to play in committing to the fact that that's what actually should be happening, and it won't happen through industry organisations because they're lowest common denominator. It has to happen by some of the big guys coming out and saying, look, this is serious, we're now going to move on it, stop all the disinformation and the nonsense, whether they're from the fossil fuel industry, the agricultural industry, or whatever. Um, We have to collectively now get our minds around this thing and move forward constructively. So that's what has to happen, I think, to make all of this really uh, start to generate the sort of speed we want and the type of investment that Heidi's talking about.
2: Paul, I I get the feeling like in Australia, we're in a bubble on transport that actually overseas electrification is moving very fast. But we just don't see it here.
1: Well, I mean, you look at what happened in China. I mean, in China, in the last 10 years, they put in a high speed rail system which is bigger than the entire system in Japan. We can't even build the link between Melbourne and (laughs) Tullamarine. Do you want Um, All right, I I did promise that one to you at the back with the
3: hand up and the. Oh, everyone's got the red band. Sorry. and, uh, uh, thanks, guys. I just wondered: uh, Do you have a comment on the uh, what should be on, on the issue of white collar crime? It seems like, as a society, we've been con- conditioned to believe that white collar corporate crime isn't a crime. And could this play a role in the fact that um, when you talk about making um, the it needs to be the it needs to be it needs to be made harder not to change than to change. Do we have to deal with some of our large corporates who've been laggards over 20, 30 years and make it actually criminal and in what they're doing?
1: Well, there's going to be a session on this tomorrow, actually, I think, with Julian Burnside on the legal a- a- dimensions of this, but there's no question that... What you're going to see from now on is increasing legal action around the world if companies do not act. That's what the regulators around the world are now telling them they've got to do. If you look at the Netherlands where um, you have a human rights bill, Shell has now been taken to court for not acting in accordance with its supposed commitment to the Paris Agreement. Um, The same has happened in the United States with Exxon and so on. It's very hard to get a lot of these legal cases up, but you're going to see more and more of them, and some will succeed, which they did in Holland. The government has been forced to change its climate uh, strategy
0: because of a high court decision that was a result of public pressure. Just quickly on, on that, I was given, someone said something to me recently that, that, that stopped me in my tracks for a second. They, they said not all corruption is illegal. And when we have when we have people transitioning immediately from Minerals Council to the Prime Minister's office and we have MPs transitioning immediately to, to industry, uh, we have a form, I think, of, of, of white-collar crime. Uh, and you know, who, who, who could say that the sports rorts is anything but uh, a form of corruption or a form of, uh, of white-collar crime?
2: Thanks very much. We've only got, we've got time for one more.
3: I just want to pick up on some of the comments earlier about our transmission network, and it's we are constrained, uh, you know, a capacity to generate solar is constrained by a transmission network. 30 years ago, we had a government that cashed in and essentially divvied up the distribution lines between, what, five different companies. You look at the experience of the MBN Co, that in order to upgrade copper to fibre, essentially had to buy out the private sector, junk the existing infrastructure, and create their own. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think that business and these five separate businesses can actually combine to upgrade a network, or whether the government actually has to nationalise a lot of the stuff that's been privatised.
0: Quickly say, I I personally can't see that we got any benefit from privatising the transmission network. I'm not sure what benefit we got from privatising retail. Either there has been benefit in privatising generation. It's, there's, there's been a lot of competition between them, a lot of innovation that probably wouldn't have happened if if we still had just a single uh, a, a single party. But yeah, the transmission networks. Um, I, I think there would be a lot to be said for for uh, unprivatised. I don't want to say nationalisation because that sounds uh, very scary. Um, but there's no political appetite for it, unfortunately. Um, we're not very good at un- unscrambling eggs in Australia. Uh, those those assets are now owned. Have uh, so so many fingers in so many pies that own those that I don't know how we unscramble that.
2: Um, thank you. Could, if you could, you please all thank the panel. Um, it's been a fantastic discussion. And sorry to too. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.